You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This week's guest is Sean Maloney. Sean is a force of nature. The first Canadian civilian historian to go into combat since World War II. Author of a trilogy on Canada's role in the war in Afghanistan, where he was deployed multiple times. And a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada. He is never happier though than when wading through secret nuclear plans and secret documents. He joined me to talk about his fascination for the topic, which I share, and his recent book, Emergency War Plans, The American Doomsday Machine. Sean and I roll up our sleeves to help listeners understand nuclear weapons and how our leaders plan to deal with nuclear war. This one was a lot of fun about a very grave topic, one that is brought into focus by war's reintroduction to my home continent of Europe, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Along the way, we discuss the role of human intelligence operations in nuclear doomsday planning, the policy of massive retaliation versus flexible response. So think about going straight to a 10 in nuclear war versus going to a 2, 3, 5, or a 7. Some of the other key terms you need to understand the nuclear landscape and some pop culture recommendations to help listeners explore this issue further. Because Sean has also written a book on Dr. Strangelove and nuclear fiction. I remember when I was very, very foolishly trying to look at the Soviet-Afghan war and I thought it was going to be a nice clean-cut case study and then before you know <laughs> it, uh, the whole internal complexity of Afghanistan gets put on my radar and then you can't understand Afghanistan without understanding Pakistan and you can't understand Pakistan without understanding India and then pretty soon you've got the whole, the whole region on your plate. Then you've got to understand Dale Bandism and then the interface between the, the Mughal Empire and the Safavids. I mean, it, well, the first book I wrote it back in 2003, and I'm like, oh my God, that's primitive. It took going there repeatedly and trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a three volume history of the war coming out next year. It's the Canadian Army's history, which is, goes into great detail as much as I understood it at the time. So, um, and even then, I've had to rewrite the epilogue. It's not published yet. I've had to rewrite the epilogue twice. Wow. Here I got to do it again. I look forward to those books coming out, but part of the reason we are talking today is to talk about some of your other works. So just before we start digging into your story a little bit more, and there's so much I want to talk about today, 
How do you find the time to do all of this? Do you have a process? How do you bring it all together? Well, I will do this. And I will say that as a junior officer in the Canadian Army, when I was very young, I learned how to organize time and space. And that, and that served me well throughout my PhD and, of course, now and all the other things. So it, it's a question of balance. It's also a question of getting enough sleep. Uh, the, brain, the brain has to have sleep to operate. And uh, you have to attack it holistically. You can't just singly focus on it. There has to be other things you got to do, too. And then reading outside the subject as well. So it makes for a very busy day. I make sure I write in the morning up until noon. So whenever I get up. And I'll, I'll write till noon. And then in the afternoon, I'm usually doing admin or, or organizing the next next thing I'm going to write. So, But only after I've assembled the information and organized it. And that's the other secret of it, is organizing the information. And when do you start writing in the morning? Oh, 5.30, 6. All the way through till noon? Wow. Pretty much. And it, you know, it's propelled by a lot of espresso. <laughs> Let's be honest. There, there's, there's caffeine that propels this. But mostly, it's also interest in the subject. And this, that's really important because I only take on subjects that are, are complex and that I want to understand and make understandable to everybody else. So that's part of it. Like it's, it's almost like a mystery that you're uncovering step by step, but you know you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. You sort of know what the puzzle looks like, but where it goes, you get new information pops up. So... There's a discipline to that. Again, I attack it. I attack the projects because they're, they're it's interesting and it's new, and I want other people to understand that uh, history is evolutionary. Um, it's not static. And what we thought we knew 20 years ago, there's new stuff now. This what we thought we knew 60 years ago isn't necessarily the case. And to understand that change is really important because that actually has an impact on policy. You get the wrong history you can wind up developing the wrong policy. And I saw that in Afghanistan, which I tried to work to correct. So let's talk about your broader research and what you're up to, because the Afghanistan war was, it was actually punctuating a a long-standing interest in nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear intelligence and those kinds of subjects, right? I'm actually a Cold War historian, but I got drawn into the Balkans and I wound up in Kosovo and Bosnia and Croatia as part of extension, I was actually the historian for the Canadian Army and NATO when we committed forces to the Balkans. And I was very young at the time, but so I wrote the history of the Canadian Army and NATO, but the last chapter dealt with a re- repositioning going into the Balkans. And so that got me interested in what was going on in terms of ethnic conflict and stabilization operations. And that led me to go to Kosovo. And then eventually I sort of, I, I, that, when that was over, I started go back to the Cold War I did my dissertation that dealt with Canada-U.S. nuclear relationships, which focused on the technical aspects of it. And then 9-11 happened. So, but this has been great to get back to the Cold War. I mean, there's so much new and exciting literature on it, new material, new ways of looking at it. It's, it's, it's amazing. So I want to come back to the new and the exciting, but before we, before we get going, uh, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask is, in your book, the Emergency War Plan, you talk about Megadeth. And one of my favorite bands as a kid was Megadeth. Uh, you know, <laughs> and their song, uh, Peace Sells But Who's Buying. So I guess the first question is, what is Megadeth for our listeners? Megadeth, it actually pops up in Dr. Strangelove on the back of a binder by one of the characters, you know, world equivalent of Megadeths. Okay, so it shows up in pop culture there. Um, I think I'd have to go back and look, but there's a, a, a guy named ELM Burns that wrote a book called Mega Murder, which was a critique of, of, of nuclear weapons and arms control back in the 1960s. So I don't know if Megadeth was actually used as a, as a real measurement. It may have been something that uh, one of the analysts was using. It might have been somebody who was kidding. Um, but yeah, that, the origins of that term, is that would be kind of fun to drill into. I, have, I think the chapter is called Megadeth Musings uh, in Emergency War Plan. And what does, what does Megadeth mean? Does that mean the death of a million people? Probably, yeah. Like a large, like, yeah, million. I think, I, I'm not exactly sure okay. how we would quantify it, but yeah, millions of people. Okay. Absolutely. 
And and tell us some of the new and exciting things that you've found out, Sean, because I know that we spoke previously on the phone and there were some things that you were really keen to share with our listeners who are fascinated by the world of intelligence and espionage. I stumbled into this because when I was a grad student before that, we were brought up with a particular way of looking at nuclear intelligence in the 1950s. And that tended to revolve around the U-2 and the deployment of the U-2 in the mid-50s, okay? And so the, the sort of common understanding is there's sort of all this vague nuclear intelligence about targets in the Soviet Union. The U-2 shows up and it reveals all. And then satellites show up and reveal more. So there's sort of that view of things. And I've been brought up with that. And a lot of people have been brought up with that. But when I started drilling into this, I found out that human, human intelligence played a significant role from 1946 well into the well into the 60s. That reflects a sort of debate or, just, or tension within the intelligence community, particularly in the U.S., which the United States is very technologically driven as a society and as an intelligence apparatus. So and humans kind of squishy, people lie, people deceive, they're sociopaths out there, and pictures from U2s don't lie. So there's a tendency to go with the technical side of it rather than the human side. The more I drilled in the human side, I found out that the, the human was actually fairly accurate. Just before we get into those specifics, uh, just clarify what it is we're talking about here. You're talking about inside the Soviet Union relaying information about about nuclear intelligence Um because uh, for many SpyCast listeners, you know, if we're just talking about human more generally, they're going to think, well, this is the era of the Cambridge Five. We kind of know that human's important, but but you're saying that the narrative that the West had to rely on U2s and then satellites because it was difficult to run human operations inside the Soviet Union was wrong and there were actually operations. Is that correct? More or less, but it's, it has to be qualified we know about guys like Pinkovsky, right, and Popov, and the sort of high-end guys, but it's the low-end collection on really innocuous, apparently innocuous stuff like logistics that gets completely overlooked. And what's equally interesting is open-source int that was being collected as well that contributed to the picture, okay? And so, again, this sort of gets jumped over, but... There's some. I went look. I, what I would do is I would look at the the human as it, that's been declassified, and then I'd use Google Earth to take a look at the grid references and find out what they were looking at. And sure enough, I'd find a satellite analysis of that site from the 1960s. So I could track our understanding of these particular facilities, starting with the the early years. And then progressing into the into the uh, the more technological, and there's a direct connection between them. I mean, it was fascinating. If, for example, and this is, we sort of heard this, but I had to look at it myself. The National Socialist Germans were flying reconnaissance operations as far as the Urals, and all that material was was cataloged efficiently by the Germans, obviously, and that material was recovered at the end of the war by the West, and so there were factories and other facilities. Sorry, this is the Galen organization? Not necessarily. That's another thing, too, that everybody will sort of look towards the Galen organization. But what it boils down to is the U.S. Air Force and its predecessor organizations created something called Project Ringer. And later, it becomes a joint Air Force-CIA operation. But what they're doing is they're interviewing everybody coming out of the Eastern Bloc, refugees, return prisoners of war particularly because they're being used as slave labor in the Soviet Union and they're not dumb. They remember things. And so they're debriefing a lot of people and they have to sort out the chaff and the wheat. And I, I've, I've got the take where they've got the good stuff. And you're able to look at that and say, hey, we dug an underground facility at Strie. We don't know what it is. And next thing you know, you find out it's a nuclear storage facility. Okay. So that part of it was particularly fascinating. So Ringer does all of that. The British, with the, the British uh, exchange mission in East Germany, the take from them is massive. At one point, they're able to get construction people into Soviet facilities as they're being built and then sending the plans back to the West, I, airfields, bunkers, command and control stuff, in East Germany particularly. Here's another thing people aren't familiar with, people forget. Uh, Austria was split like Germany was until 1955, 
So the Soviets had jet bomber bases in Austria with Aleutian 28s. Well, there was intelligence efforts using Austrian labor forces on the airfield. They even got manuals of the aircraft. They got the specs of the aircraft, the order of battle, the whole bit. So that was really important because that particular bomber force could hit England and possibly preempt the U.S. bombers. So again, these are all forgotten low-level intelligence people. They're not high-profile like Popov or, 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 uh, or Pankovsky's, but they definitely contributed to the building the targeting plant. No doubt about it. Okay, so just for our listeners, you know, one of the things I love about our podcast is that it ranges from people that are doing this kind of stuff day in, day out to people that are casual listeners. So I just want to try to break this down just a little bit more for people that aren't familiar with the Galen organization, nuclear war planning and so forth. So give us the 30,000 feet view of your book. What, what is it essentially that you're doing in the book? Basically, we've got a problem in viewing this whole period. We have public policy pronouncements, but we, what we say we're going to do. We have the, the media and academic discussion of the public pronouncements. But then there's the strategy itself, okay, which is usually high, is highly classified. So the discussion tends to revolve around the first two points, and sometimes that's deliberate to project a particular view to the opposition for deterrence purposes. But then there's the plan itself and how it was going to work and how that evolved. That's what I was get, I'm getting at with the emergency war plan book. And that's, you can see all the factors that fed into that, including the intelligence. And the intelligence directly affects the plan. Like there's a, there is a, a direct relationship between the intelligence and the targeting, but it's also in terms of collection of information to get the bombers to the target. So you're dealing with uh, a whole series of overflights and penetration operations and ferreting to try and figure out how to get the bombers to the target if the plan has to be activated. That's important because uh, to have, a, have a, de a, a deterrent posture that's credible, you have to demonstrate that you're capable of carrying it out. So it becomes this really holistic thing. I, and so the 5,000-foot view of that is, uh, is, is how all, that, all those pieces work together. What is it that you were doing here that hadn't been done before, or what were you setting out to correct or to contribute towards the conversation about the U.S.-Soviet standoff? Those two earlier views I talked about have become common currency, and they have particular names associated with them. The most associated with this is massive retaliation. So there's a view that in the 50s, you have the, the, a massive retaliation strategy, and in the 60s, you wind up having a flexible response strategy. Well, the reality is this earlier period is a lot more flexible. Massive retaliation is not the name of the actual strategy. That might be the ultimate result of it, but that's not the intent behind it. The intent behind the strategy is to deter and to be seen to be able to carry out the operation to deter. In the earlier view, it tends to be this rigid thing. You either turn it on or you turn it off. And that's why flexible response evolves because it's, some people view this as rigid. I found out it's not as rigid as we thought it was. And it, in fact, breaks down to two other periods. One, which is we have a small number of nuclear weapons. We're going to replay the Second World War with a small number of nuclear weapons. And then when you get thermonuclear weapons, you can't do that anymore. And the other side's going to get them. And so it has to shift to a more deterrent posture. So I'm taking a whole new look at this and saying, hey, wait a minute. It's a little more complicated than we thought. And the people behind it weren't as crazy as they've been made out to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to try to break down some of those terms for us. So can you just outline to our listeners what we're talking about here? So, you know, a tripwire response or massive retaliation and then a flexible response. Just... Talk about what those are and, and why is that became the accepted uh, version of events. So what are they first? When we're dealing with what people call massive retaliation, the idea is commonly understood is that if the opponent or the Soviets do anything, then it triggers this, this massive response where we basically strip mine the Soviet Union with thermonuclear weapons. Okay. So there's that, there's that sort of belief system. Got it? The reality is the way the plan is set up because of the alert system is designed to let the other side see components of the alert system so they're going to back off on whatever it is they're doing. 
So there's a warning aspect of this to say, hey, we're watching what you're doing and we're increasing our readiness incrementally so you can see it and it's giving you an opportunity to back away so that we don't have to do this. And it's, it's again, our sort of view of this is, is th we think about this in terms of missiles in 30 minutes, flight time and instantaneous nuclear war. Back then you're dealing mostly with bombers and it takes hours to go and do something. So it, it gives people opportunities to back away if you will. Does that make sense? It, it does. And when do we go from the planes taking hours to the idea of, you know, you've got 20 minutes to say goodbye to your loved ones and that kind of thing? That's generally starts in the 60s, but it accelerates in the 1970s. The Soviets will deploy submarines off the coast and it's like 15 minutes flight time to the targets. So that space of time shrinks dramatically from the 50s to the 60s to the 70s. So for, for our listeners that are new to this, they might be, you know, they, they might be forgiven for thinking. It seems, the whole thing seems back to front. Surely the more flexible response would be when you had bombers where you had a few hour window to turn things around, whereas when it's uh, missiles that give you a very small period of time, then then there's not that much that's flexible about it. So... Why did this become the normal way of understanding it? Probably because the, the, there had to be a linkage to, you don't just fire everything at once. It's usually the result of a crisis somewhere that's escalating, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, or some of the crises the public doesn't even know about, for example. But there are occasions where you will see this dance between the nuclear forces under different circumstances, most in many cases with an international crisis. So the idea of an international nuclear crisis is relatively new in the 1950s. I would say Suez is probably the first one in 1956. But the idea of the crisis and the idea of the crisis being understood by the people playing the chess game gets more and more sophisticated as we move on through the Cold War until it reaches the point where this is the norm. But that doesn't just start that way. It evolves to that. How, how did this myth live on for so long that it was massive retaliation and then we flip over and then it's more flexible? Like, why are other historians not doing their job properly? Or is it just, that, like, help us understand that? I'm not sure if I should criticize other people because it, it, on this because the information's evolutionary. That's one of the reasons I tend to focus on the, uh, I, I call it the emergency war plan, the EWP, rather than, referring to massive retaliation or the other ideas. I want people to understand that the strategy and the plan is, is the EWP. It will shift in the night around 1960 to what's known as the PSYOP, the single integrated operational plan. And that plan is a, like a living document that will evolve throughout the rest of the cold war. So, and then that actually has a variety of options and those will evolve too, that some people view as more flexible than the 1950s options. But um, I would argue that the 50s are a little more flexible than people think. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get you to slam anyone else. It was, it was more like some of our listeners will be familiar with, say, British histories of the Second World War until the 70s that didn't include the role that SIGINT would yeah, play just yeah. because... A, you exactly. can't talk about yeah. it or you didn't know about it. But so, so earlier historians may have been working with that restriction. Oh, big time. Absolutely. I don't pretend to have a 100% solution here. I'm going to say maybe it's the 70% solution, which is different from the 20% solution in terms of trying to build the picture of what was going on. And I'm open to new stuff too. I mean, this is, an, this is sort of as, as one phase and maybe, maybe somebody comes up with new and different ways of looking at it later on. I like your analogy to, to, uh, to Ultra. The availability of the information is key. Like what I did here could not have been done 20 years ago, I would think. Possibly not even 10 years ago. And just to continue setting our stall out, we often hear of, you know, the atomic bomb, the H-bomb, thermonuclear warfare. Help us understand what we're talking about here because there is there are changes in these weapons that we are thinking of. So... What is similar? What's going on and what's different? What are some of the major evolutionary changes we see in you know, nuclear weapons from Hiroshima and Nagasaki? The big shift will take place in the early 50s. 
the weapons that are used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and are stockpiled in the in the nineteen late nineteen forties are comparatively small in terms of what they yield, i.e., their explosive power. And generally, we refer to this that measurement as kilotons. So, for example, the weapons used in Japan are between fifteen to twenty-two kilotons. Now, what will happen is the technology will change. By 1952, you can detonate weapons in the megaton yield range, which are millions of tons of TNT. The explosive power and the effects of them are dramatically larger and more widespread. So, for example, if you airburst over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah, it's incredibly devastating, but it's rebuildable. When you deal with thermonuclear weapons, you're erasing cities by gouging like one-mile craters in them. You're erasing targets, depending how you detonate the weapon, with like a single weapon that would take several weapons to use of the earlier type. The other aspect of that is what people know as fallout, which is the radioactive material that comes out of those detonations. And that will go around the planet in, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere and using the air currents and thus will contaminate a wider area, a much wider area. You're dealing with very large megaton yield weapons by the late 1950s that are incredibly destructive. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. So we get an understanding of the destructive capacity of the weapons, but what's the is is there a difference between an atomic bomb and a nuclear bomb, and and what what what's thermonuclear warfare? See, that's interesting because it in the old the old days, people tend to think of kiloton yield weapons as atomic weapons and thermo or nuclear weapons as thermonuclear weapons. The reality is they're all they all have a nuclear process. It just it depends on the science of the weapon itself. And eventually, you reach the point where the atomic, the use of the word atomic becomes obsolete. You'll see it in popular culture throughout the 1950s. It's huge. And you'll see it drop off in the 1960s. So it's, it, it tends to be a popular term uh, and sometimes a planning term. But ultimately, both weapons involve some form of nuclear reaction. So they just commonly get known as nuclear. The weapons. Okay, so so they're all from Hiroshima, Nagasaki on through. Then they're all nuclear weapons. They are, yeah. Back then, they would have been re- split up to atomic and thermonuclear. And what's the what's the H bomb? You hear people talk about that. The H bomb. The hydrogen bomb is a thermonuclear weapon, and it uses a particular process that does involve various ele- of the light elements. And the the term hydrogen bomb wound up being associated with that because of the thermonuclear process itself. And then, of course, it becomes a popular term. So the A-bomb, the H-bomb. You've got songs in the 1950s <laughs> talking about, you know, drop the H-bomb and that sort of thing. So the hydrogen bomb or H-bomb becomes this public understanding, a public way of describing a thermonuclear weapon. And again, you'll see that in popular culture. Even the Soviets, I'm, 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 my next book I'm working on deals with Soviet nuclear weapons. Even the Soviets have this terminological issue. It's kind of funny to see it. Well, that's been really helpful. Um, I I missed out on the fifties stuff, but uh, like I say, I was brought up on uh, you know Megadeth and even Iron Maiden. Two minutes to midnight. They've got a lot of stuff that looks at. I was, I was going to say Iron Maiden instead of Megadeth, right? So yeah, <laughs> right on. 
that's really helpful. And and again, just briefly before we move on, you know, just to make sure that all of our we don't leave anyone uh, behind. You mentioned airbursts. Just really quickly walk through. You know, you've got airbursts, subsurface bursts. Just really briefly tell our listeners what we're talking about here. That depends on what we call height of burst and where where the weapon is actually detonated. So if it comes in contact with the ground, that's a ground burst. If it's an air burst, it's detonated above its ground, its uh, well epicenter or ground zero, some people call it. And a subsurface burst is underwater, or if the bomb actually drills into the ground and detonates. The reason that's important is that it, you can manipulate the effects of what of how you detonate the weapon in relationship to the target. So in one case, when you don't have a lot of nuclear weapons and you want to generate a lot of damage, you might drop a weapon. Uh, well, I got a specific case. There's a Soviet submarine and naval base that's in a, in, a, in a bay. And so if they don't have enough, you don't have enough weapons to kill each target individually, you drop the weapon right into the water and it generates a radioactive wave and radioactive mist that just contaminates everything. And you also get wave action depending how close it is. So is it's, it all depends on what your target is and how are you going to use how are you going to detonate the weapon to destroy the target. So air burst is something that's in the air. It re- technically reduces the fallout, where it's believed to reduce the amount of fallout. The damage radius is smaller. If you want to kill the target, you want to do a ground burst or dig something out of the ground. You're going to have to ground burst, it, which then generates a lot of fallout. And an air burst could be used to take out satellites and those types of things as well. Well, that's interesting too. Uh, yeah, you're dealing you're dealing with high altitude nuclear effects or HANE, which involve electromagnetic pulse and various forms of uh, energy directed at targets in space. So that's almost this, that's almost another category. It's a high altitude a high altitude burst is the terminology I've seen. That's designed to kill anything and potentially missiles coming in. You're killing it with an anti ballistic missile, destruction of satellites or damaging satellites. Destruction of the communication system. You can black out parts of the ionosphere so that high-frequency communications don't bounce off the ionosphere. The, wep- the weapons are very flexible. Uh, it's not just a question of generating craters and cities. You can do other things with them as well. And just really briefly before we move on any further, um, that, <laughs> since you're doing such a great job of giving us a masterclass, uh, talk about the ev- <laughs> talk about the evolution of the delivery systems because that changes over time too, right? Right. So start with with manned bombers, and uh, eventually we're thinking Enola again, those types of things. Exactly. Like take a World War II four engine bomber and modify it so it can drop nuclear weapons. As that becomes a, you wind up having jet propelled technology. You do the same thing. It increases speed, and you can carry more further. And then you can wind. What will happen there is the bombers will have to get through to the targets, and there's missile sites and and air bases, so they have to blast their way through. So they'll create an air to surface missile to destroy those. So you get the bomber through to the target, and from there you can move on to ballistic missiles of various ranges, and uh, submarine launched missiles as well. The sort of end result of this is you have a triad that will have manned bombers ballistic missiles, and ballistic missile submarines. And then you have, you have a variety of battle, battlefield nuclear weapons that can do smaller tasks as well. The ones that always always found fascinating and terrifying were the multiple independent re-entry vehicles. Could you tell the listeners about well, them? Merv. MIRVs? Sure. A, a MIRV is where you have several smaller nuclear weapons mounted in a single missile. And so one missile can hit multiple targets. And so you have a what, basically what's called a MERV. Some people call it a MERV bus. It, sometimes it has other names. It's a platform that has all the warheads on board. It basically gets launched into space, and it comes down a ballistic arc, and then it spews out the reentry vehicles against the targets. And it's very difficult to defend against, right? Yep, depending how... Yeah, exactly. So do you have, you have anti-ballistic missiles to shoot them down? Do you try and kill them before they launch? Uh, yeah, it's a the the MERV complicates the defensive problems dramatically. No doubt about that. And there's also other ways that the defensive problem can be uh, complicated by using the Earth to send it a different way or to make it come in the back door. And could you just briefly talk about that? Yeah, it's called fractional orbital bombardment system. Basically, this is a, a nuclear missile that has a retro rocket attached to the bomb itself, and so. 
one of the reasons these were created by the Soviets to avoid the early warning apparatus that the Canada and the U.S. had and the Brits had up in the Arctic. So that apparatus watched the horizon, and if it saw a bunch of bogies coming over the horizon, it alerted. In this case, FOBS was designed to go around the, the southern polar route and come in behind that and then hit the uh, retro rocket would, would fire and, and then drop the warhead onto the target with almost no warning. This is this is fantastic, Sean. I'm really I'm really enjoying this, and it's so it's so educational. I think uh, for a lot of people because this is kind of interesting but complicated stuff. So let's let's focus back on your book. So um, so you're you're reevaluating this early phase of the Cold War where it wasn't just like you say you know mutually assured destruction where we're all going to go down with the ship, so to speak, but. What, I guess one of my questions is, what role does, does do American presidents play in all of this? So we, the period that we're talking about in your book, we're going from Truman to Eisenhower, and then towards the end of your book, we're talking about Kennedy coming in. So help us understand the role that the presidents play in your book. That's really interesting. Again, we've got a popular culture construct of how that works. Like we, we've all seen Strange Love. And, and fail safe and the sort of the crisis movies depict this to in a particular way at a particular time. And you can, it, that, that starts to get static around the sixties and seventies, but this early period, the presidents and the military leadership are still trying to figure out their, their way through this. So nuclear weapons are so destructive. And there's also legislation, the atomic energy act, which actually limits what the military can do. Okay, like the the weapons themselves don't belong to the Air Force. They belong to the Atomic Energy Commission. At least the material does. And there's actually in the early days, the Atomic Energy, the commissioner had plays a role in releasing the nuclear weapons. So the issue of who has control of the nuclear weapons and when and how they're released, they feel their way through this in the 50s. Actually, strangely enough, earlier there was a lot of debate about Trump and the so-called button and the briefcase and all that earlier this year, right? And so people have a particular view, that particular view. That didn't exist yet. And they, they, they worked their way to the idea where the president can release the nuclear weapons. Uh, and there's a system, various systems to do that, communications and codes and, and that sort of thing. But in the early years, they're still trying to figure out how that works. Now, they can do that because they don't have to did launch in 15 minutes. They've got time to react. So as the, that time gap we talked about gets smaller the process to make the decision speeds up and that produces all sorts of interesting dynamics. But in the early years, it's pretty clear to me, the AEC commissioner and the president, it seems like they had to jointly agree to release the nuclear weapons from the atomic energy storage facilities to the U S air force. And that's what LeMay and some of the air generals are like, okay, what if we have to speed this up? Can we speed this up? Can we legally speed this up because of the, the, the legal apparatus. So in the 50s, they're trying to figure out how to do that. The worst, and of course, they're dealing with worst case scenarios. What if there's a surprise attack that kills the president before he can make a decision? And that's a problem they start talking about around 1952. They try to work on a variety of means of speeding it up without losing control of the weapons. And so that process is an evolutionary one throughout the 50s. And it's completely different from what we're familiar with. And so how they work through that is actually pretty interesting because you've got a lot of allegations. The military leadership was out of control and, and they weren't, but critics didn't see the actual process. So they, they don't, they don't know that. And of course, nobody could talk, could talk about it at the time because it was classified, obviously. You know, this period that you're looking at nuclear weapons coming along, do they change the, the dynamic or the calculus between the army, the navy, the air force, the, the um, various components of the American military—like, what role do nuclear weapons play in all of that in this time period? As forever, forever going back, you're going to have debates between which service gets what slice of the budgetary action, and so that debate which obviously continues today in various forms and is incredibly complex. Back then, one had to come up with a singular idea of where nuclear weapons fit into policy and strategy. And then you had to adjudicate between who was going to do what, how much resources they were going to get. But most importantly, 
there's early on, there's a limited amount of special nuclear material. So you have various parties trying to get as much nuclear material allocated to their plan as possible. And that dynamic is playing out throughout the early 50s as well. As nuclear material becomes more plentiful, it becomes less of a problem. And that relates to production facilities like gas diffusion plants and all that sort of thing. So, but when you've got a limited, it's like anything. If you have a, a limited resource, people are going to fight over it or at least intensely debate it. And so that definitely plays a role uh, in strategy development during this period. And in your book, we're mainly talking about nuclear weapons in the strategic sense, right? We're not talking about on the battlefield tactical nuclear weapons. Well, in this case, initially, they're indistinguishable. That, where it starts to split off, will be in the early 50s, and that will accelerate. And it actually relates to more and more available special nuclear material. So you can you can start doing these other tasks. And so in many cases, you'll have uh, bombs to destroy submarines, for example, nuclear death bombs that will evolve from this. It's, it, it's something that's where a larger weapon appears to be more efficient under certain circumstances. Air defense systems to shoot down planes or at least fry the plane's crew and the bombs so it can't detonate. And this is what's also really interesting. The innovation behind this and the amount of resources thrown at this. If people were working in this field, it must have just been amazing that technology is changing like every six months. We don't have that kind of rapid technological change these days. It takes like 10, 10 years to do something, right? Back then, they're going through generations of weapons, sometimes in two to three years. But on the battlefield, you'll start, you'll start seeing it applied as artillery, ballistic missiles, air-to-surface missiles, and eventually you'll have a, a nuclear recoilless rifle that's a, essentially a neutron, small neutron bomb to fry armored vehicles. It's really fascinating. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about some of the crises that you said the public doesn't know of, because I think a lot of our listeners, you know, they'll be familiar with things like the Berlin crisis, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe even Able Archer. But what are we talking about in this period? You mentioned Suez. Are there any others? Well, uh, in 1960, when the U-2 was shot down, this is the Francis Gary Powers incident, which people are generally familiar with, the movie Bridge of Surprise. What happened during that case is the U.S. Armed Forces uh, went to DEFCON 3. And so you wind up having the alerting of the nuclear forces over what is ostensibly the shoot down of a U-2, but in fact, it was in response to threats made by Khrushchev during a, a meeting and some actual moves by Soviet forces that were detected. The they were basically, they were, they, were, they were messaging back, the U.S. was messaging back that, okay, you're, you're taking these aggressive steps to back up your diplomacy, but we're going to alert our forces to show you that we're serious about matching that threat. So people don't generally know about that one. One of the most important ones that almost nobody knows about were the nuclear flourishes between the communist Chinese and the Soviets in the late 1960s. That, from what I can tell from the stuff I've been looking at, that nearly escalated into nuclear use. And almost, I mean, the CIA did a lot of analysis of that. That's where I got some of this from. That part of it is generally not understood either, how, how close that got uh, or how tense that got. Going back to Suez, I've developed new information on the Suez crisis. So everybody thinks the Suez crisis ends on a particular date, but then over the next three weeks, you've got nuclear forces being maneuvered in the Arctic, including 72 American B-47s flying in a, in a profile so that the other side can see it after the Soviets deploy about 20 bombers up into the Arctic so that we can see it. So Suez actually has, a, has even more depth and uh, complexity to it than we understood. That stuff just got declassified. So there are nuclear dimensions of other crises as well. So, man, there's, there's, there's several of them. Those are the ones I can come up with rapidly. I mean, I found it really fascinating. But for, for our listeners that may want to get a copy, do they need to... Have, do they need to have a master's in uh, nuclear physics to understand it? I mean, I've read it and I know that they don't, but help us understand the, the technical knowledge or, or what you'll learn or what you need to come to the table. With the Strangelove book, go watch all the movies first, then read the book, then watch the movies again. And so 
the book actually will enhance your understanding of the movies and vice versa. You're pretty good to go there. When you're dealing with emergency war plan, the background you should have should be generally what the Cold War was uh, and generally what people fit, where people think nuclear weapons fit into it. The EWP book is detailed, but it has to be because it's new work and I have to demonstrate how this was going to work. And, and again, the detail is crucial to that. But having a, having a general background on the Cold War and, and the nuclear dimensions of it, you'll be okay. And just tell our listeners, you know, just tell them about some of the other movies. So, you met, you know, you mentioned watch the movies before Dr. Strangelove. So, other than Dr. Strangelove, what are we talking about? Fail Safe comes to mind right off the bat. On the Beach comes to mind right off the bat. But the Bedford incident is the one that people tend to overlook. And this was a Sidney Poitier movie with Richard Widmark. And it's about what we call incidents at sea, where you have a escalatory situation between an American destroyer and a Soviet submarine. And that one's that gets overlooked, and it's really worth watching. There was a made-for-TV movie called World War III that had uh, Rock Hudson in it. It's, it's kind of... It tends again. Some of the some of the TV stuff tends to be kind of cheesy, but when you start looking at how it was written and the escalatory situation in there, it's pretty interesting. By Dawn's Early Light, another one that came out right at the end of the Cold War. That movie is practically a textbook on nuclear command and control. That's particularly worth watching. Have you seen Threads? Threads, yes, I would definitely bring up Threads. Threads is actually an updated. British movie from an earlier movie called War Games, which the BBC refused to show because it was too demoralizing. I'd recommend watching that too. The scenario in in uh, back in War Games is actually quite real. It actually tracks with what was happening at the time. And Threads does almost the same thing. But you got to be careful. Don't be in a depressed state of mind watching this. <laughs> yeah. Threads is no joke. Um, it's not for the no. It's not for the faint of heart. Not at all. <laughs> not um, at all how do you study all this stuff without becoming really pessimistic about the future or about human nature because all other things uh, aside you know we're, we're, we're well beyond the, the, the era of bronze where the most damage that I could do would be restrained by the physicality that I could use to wield a sword whereas now we can we can practically turn off the lights if we want. Well, I, I try to understand why nobody pushed the button, so to speak. You have all this, these systems, you have the, you have the situations that policymakers are put in, but why didn't they? There are reasons and there are human reasons why they didn't do that. Even our opponents realized what could happen, i.e. Khrushchev. Okay, so you're dealing with positive aspects of humanity, not not just the, the uh, depraved depths of it sort of thing. So I, that's the way I would, would explain it. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned DEFCON 3. Can you just tell the listeners what we're talking about here, DEFCON 1, DEFCON 2? In the early 1960s, the Defense Readiness Condition System was established to alert nuclear forces, depending on the circumstances. And it, it borrowed from an earlier concept, which had many other steps to it, sometimes between 12 and 16. They sort of reduce it to five or four. Again, its purpose is to alert nuclear forces to various levels, but let the other side see it so they know they're being, the situation is being taken seriously. Uh, so basically DEFCON 5 through 1, Strategic Air Command was at DEFCON 4, 1 ahead. That most of the time it had a higher level of readiness. A lot of people think DEFCON 1 means war. It's not. It's just the sort of height. It's the maximum readiness level. From what I understand, defense emergency is, is, is when uh, everything goes. And that, there are certain conditions for that. So that's the defense readiness condition that, during the Cold War. I'm not exactly sure how it works now, but uh, that's how it worked then. One of the other questions that I wanted to ask was, you know, some people are going to be listening and they're going to say, okay, I get a massive retaliation versus flexible response, but you know, isn't it quite simple that either it's deterrence and we never use nuclear weapons when the genie is out of the bottle, then there's probably not going to be a way to put it back on. There's not going to be a, a limited nuclear 
war between two great powers is just going it's just going to keep escalating until it runs out of control is would you agree with that well that's what everybody debated for nearly 40 or 50 years they still debate it at what point is it possible to keep something limited well one thing you look at you look at the arsenals now the, the yields of the weapons tend to be 200 to 300 kilotons okay these aren't 18 megaton yield blockbusters that we're around that's cold comfort of course if you're underneath it but I don't really have the answer to that. It's something that will endlessly be debated. I mean, it's a it's like a counterfactual question. I just, you know, we'll never know until we know, and hopefully we don't know. Um, yeah, I just wondered if you had any thoughts. That's that's the other thing too. I mean, you're, you're sitting here with the, with accumulated knowledge, and there are people that know a hell of a lot more about this that are practitioners. Okay, and how do you operate day to day? How do you? anticipate the threats and be prepared for that on a regular, on an ongoing basis without having issues with that. And so understanding how people are trained, how I understand how, how professionalism works in the nuclear forces. And that's absolutely crucial. You have to have good people doing this on, on every side. Like, again, I wouldn't even hazard to guess what happens in Pakistan with its nuclear forces or India with its nuclear forces. But I think one of the lessons out of all of this is that it's going to be professionalism that will get us through whatever the situation is. You've got to have good people. And how do you find those people? How do you train them? How do you put them in the right places at the right time? So that's more important, arguably, than the weapons themselves. So you mentioned the the current day. um, And I just wondered if you could tell us, I guess my thought is, me and our producer Memphis are sitting in the studio at the Spy Museum in, in Washington, D.C. The Pentagon's just across the river. The White House is just across the mall. Nuclear weapons broke out just now. Are we, are we pretty much screwed no matter what we do? Yep. <laughs> okay. Because what's, what's coming down the pike now is really, really scary. And it's an extension of what we've seen in the past. And this, re- this relates to hypersonic weapon systems. What that are can those? travel at Mach 25. These are systems that travel at like Mach 25, if you can imagine that, right? Like it's fat. Like it's how do you intercept that? Um, how do you detect it? And if you're launching it from a submarine off the coast, it's not like a ballistic missile where the flight time is 15 minutes. Do the math, right? So hypersonics may be our next problem depending how that plays out. They're being developed right now. Uh, I've been watching what the Russians have been doing. you got to be careful. They, they do a lot of... They, you can't tell sometimes that their tests are designed for psychological or information operations effect. That technology is not new, by the way. It goes back to the 60s. It just wasn't developed. Now it's being developed. So with everything speeding up, that redu- we're back to that reducing that reaction and decision time, right? So that, then there's probably going to be a push to have... a Artificial intelligence handled the defense system. And if you really want to scare the hell out of yourself, watch the movie Colossus, the Forbin Project, where they do that. And that's a 1970s movie. <laughs> that's a morally terrifying film by any stretch of the imagination. At what point do you let the computers run everything? Because you can't react quickly enough. Oh, I mean, everybody's watched Terminator, so you get the sort of I- the idea behind that. But we got to figure out how we're going to handle that, as a, not just as a country yours, mine, or everybody else's, but as a species. Again, I don't pretend to have the answers to that. I look backwards into the into history, but there might be few answers in there if we put our minds to it. And that's why the history has to be as, as good as you can get it. Let's just say that the U.S. is successful in making sure that there's no Soviet submarines, you know, just off of the coast of Long Island or... Los Angeles or something like what what kind of times are we talking about here with Mach 27 if if there's like missiles coming from I don't know Vladivostok or Moscow what what kind of time frame are we talking about here are we talking we're talking minutes if it's like over the pole it's not going to be 30 minutes wow put it that way okay it'll be a lot less wow okay depending on the pro depending on its profile obviously but it's a shame it's so early. I feel like I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like scotch. That, that's what I t- have after the coffee. Okay. So, yeah, yeah uh, me too. <laughs> I think we need to know as much about this as possible, as uh, particularly 
particularly people who vote and make decisions and are part of this and understand that in some cases our opponents have a whole different outlook on deterrence. I'm finding that now with the work I'm doing on the Soviet book. There's no Soviet concept of of nuclear deterrence in the 50s. It doesn't exist in terms of a of a strategy or or a policy. It's all up to Khrushchev at one point about how he behaves as a person and what he can convince other people to do, as opposed to having something in doctrinal form. So, in my view, it's better to be prepared than not prepared. Given what's coming down the pike, in some ways, we're kind of in the 50s equivalent when we're dealing with the new systems. And, and who knows what else? Cyber, huge problem. Electromagnetic pulse that's generated without a nuclear weapon, another huge problem. Uh, there's a lot of issues that are going to have to be addressed squarely and not just shunted aside. That's my view on it. In my, own cup, in my own country, we have issues trying to figure out some of this as well because nobody wants to spend any money. But what happens when the circuits of your sewage system are fused by an electromagnetic pulse burst and then they're, they're never going to unfuse, right? What do you do with all the wastewater in a city, for example, if there's nowhere to put it? You don't necessarily have to destroy the city by vaporizing it, right? You can just generate another plague. That's another story. I just think that the more informed that people people are, the better. But I just think that people don't realize how much the whole world around them is implicated in all of this, whether it be, you know, their appliances at home or, you know, the sewerage or the water or, you know, computing or, you know, there's no point in having the the best and most sophisticated military in the world if all of its ability to communicate with itself is is undercut because of something else. So there's just there's just so much going on here. Yeah, I, it's I would suggest that it's problematic too. And again, our predecessors in the fifties were confronted with similar questions, just with different technologies. All right, if you again, the popular culture will reflect fear, the fears of the day. Our popular culture also reflects fears of the day. If you ever watch the series Black Mirror. It's utterly terrifying what they've extrapolated in, in that particular series where you've got autonomous vehicles killing people and uh, and that sort of thing. And it, I, again, the warnings tend to come out of the pop culture. In some cases, that can help. So when The Day After came out in 1983, Ronald Reagan watched that. And that apparently had a, played a significant role in him wanting to, to uh, open dialogue with the Soviet Union. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you, Sean, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again, maybe about your oh, about, absolutely about your yeah. tr- about your trilogy, or the next time you're in DC, we'll go for a scotch together or something. Um, that would be great. It's been amazing to talk to you. Thanks ever so much. Oh, this is great. I I want to do it again. I can't wait to come and see the new museum too. So, I mean, my wife and I were down there. We just loved it. Fantastic. And I, I tell everybody about it. You guys have a really good thing going there. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've got the resources you need to do it. I mean, I love, I love, I've, I've listened to the other podcasts. It's fun. I, this is, you guys have a really good thing going. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> so keep doing it. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. 
We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. 